Coming up on Tech Nation, Dr. Peter Diamandis, the executive chair of the XPRIZE Foundation and co-founder of COVAX. Our own Tech Nation Health chief correspondent, Daniel Kraft, joins me to interview Peter about the COVID-related XPRIZES and COVAX's COVID vaccine. Then Peter Beetham, the CEO of Cebus, tells us that natural mutations in plants happen one tiny nucleotide at a time. Such a mutation, here and there, caused the Irish potato famine. And Cebus's technology can reverse these tiny mutations and even enhance seeds one tiny nucleotide at a time. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2012, Harvard Medical School professor George Church published Regenesis, how synthetic biology will reinvent nature and ourselves. While most people understand that they and all living organisms have DNA, how is that different from synthetic biology? Well, synthetic biology is an effort to apply engineering principles to biology, uh, molecular biology in particular, in the sense that rather than t- taking uh, you know, random parts and bashing them together, we're taking well-characterized parts that we trust. We're doing some of the things that you do in other engineering disciplines like safety uh, engineering and uh, part standardization, and that's the thing that's new. I think what's so important is that people understand a lot about computers these days. They know that they they program computers and their instructions, and the instructions contained in the DNA are just four, G, C, A, and T. And the idea that now not only can we decode anything that's in DNA, we can take on a computer and type G, C, A, T, and it can create uh, that actual DNA sequence. Right. Computers are just two components, zeros and ones, so the, the four versus two are very similar. What's important when you talk, talk about instructions, they're much bigger things. Um, we inherit now with uh, synthetic biology this engineering discipline of computer-aided design, where you actually use computers to design computers, or you use computers to design cars and bridges and so forth. We're now applying this to biology, where we'll try to make a particular shape or a particular regulatory sequence and so forth. There's a huge opportunity here, and I think we're meeting in the synthetic biology community of of, uh, encouraging responsible behavior, um, of uh, encouraging safety and security and licensing, um, where we can make sure that everybody's doing what they've been trained to do. And uh, some of the responsible uh, conduct, best practices include making uh, chassis, as they're called, these are biological uh, organisms that we use in the laboratory, which are uh, locked into the laboratory. They couldn't survive in the wild. We've tested them, uh, not just on paper, but in actual uh, physically isolated uh, communities, and that they can't exchange genetic material with the wild. So they're locked in with chemicals that only are produced in the laboratory, and they can't exchange material 
genetic material. A lot of people a few years ago said, didn't that Craig Venter and his team do so? That's the first time we heard about this synthetic biology. <laughs> the question is, what did Craig Venter and his team do compared to what we can, what we're talking, the larger frame of what we're talking about? Well, well even before the, the Venter team made a bacterial genome, many people had made viral genomes, which are ju just as significant milestones. And just making a copy of a genome isn't necessarily of practical s significance, nor is it something that, that tells you a great deal of biology as a learning experience. So, so they decoded the, the DNA of various genomes, then basically retyped it into the computer and created it again. Exactly. So they made, they made a copy. It was significant that it was, it was read in to the computer um, using state-of-the-art technology and then read out of the computer. So, so reading would be sequencing and then printed out with, uh, at the time, conventional DNA synthesis methods. But what's more significant and what synthetic biology is really about is, is changing the function. Sometimes it can just be changing one base pair in this vast ocean of millions to billions of base pairs can greatly change the function. You've been listening to a 2012 Tech Nation interview with George Church, the author of Regenesis, How Synthetic Biology Will Reinvent Nature and Ourselves. He remains the Robert Winthrop Professor of Genetics at Harvard Medical School. After the interview, he was headed for a plane where he declared he would be programming a bacteria. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Dr. Peter Diamandis, Executive Chair of the XPRIZE Foundation and co-founder of COVAX. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft joins me to talk about all Peter's COVID-related activities. Then we turn to agriculture. Peter Beetham, the CEO of Cebus in San Diego, joins me to talk about how tiny edits and seeds act just like mutations do, and only a few tiny mutations cause the Irish potato famine. We'll hear about Cebus's technology and what it can do for crops today. And now, Dr. Peter Diamandis. Peter, welcome to Tech Nation. A pleasure. It's good to be back. Of course, here we have uh, with me our chief health, Tech Nation health correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, and uh, he and I uh, want to ask you some questions, some of which may be handled by him, because I know you guys work together. We keep hearing about vaccines and testing and being treated in the hospital, but I understand that we can't really be talking about dealing with COVID in the medical setting. Is that true? Hey, Daniel. Good to hear your voice, pal, as well. And, uh, and it's great to be here with you. So, you know, one thing that's happening is COVID-19 is accelerating the future faster than anyone can really imagine. And I think one of the 
transformations that's occurring is how and where we get our healthcare. And, you know, it used to be you get sick, you go to the emergency room, you go see your doctor, you're into the hospital. And Daniel may know the figures, but the hospital is a really dangerous place to be. I think, you know, more people die from diseases they get or misdiagnoses or problems per year than have been killed from, from uh, the pandemic so far this year. And I think one of the sort of visions of the future and what all of this is doing is moving healthcare from the hospital ultimately into the home. Daniel, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think COVID's been this great accelerant. Uh, I love this quote from Regina Dugan, who we both know, you know, that uh, Sputnik sparked the space age and COVID is sparking the health age and moving us from, you know, hospital to home to phone to even inside our bodies. And that's where we need care to, to be more proactively. And clearly on all the exponentials we talk about through singular university and exponential medicine are starting to really enable that future faster than we think. Yeah, I, I think that the tech to enable this you know, there are companies that you and I both know, like Open Water, Mary Lou Jepsen's building technology that could basically have an MRI in your desk drawer. Uh, I mean, it's crazy uh, that the sensors and the, the 5G networks could allow you to be constantly scanned, not just once a year for your health checkup, but like every minute of the day to find disease at the very beginning. Right, and particularly with COVID, is the Internet of Things. Our smartwatches now can even predict who might have COVID based on changes in heart rate variability or the sound of your cough on your smartphone. The trick is to connect the dots and to align all the misaligned incentives in the healthcare systems. You see a lot, Peter. What's your favorite sort of synthesis that's been catalyzed by COVID? I think my favorite is that there are industries that are fundamentally broken uh, and need massive change. And those are healthcare and education, top of my list. And I think both of them are undergoing, um, but people are seeing how broken they truly are, how expensive they are, how difficult they are. And so we're going to see both of them basically toppled. The same way that Google sort of transformed research and libraries, I think we're going to see this, this tsunami of entrepreneurs and sort of converging exponential technologies uh, coming in and reinventing uh, who gives us our health care, which is going to be to a large degree AI. It's going to be the it's going to be a lot of the tech companies and where we get it, which is not going to be the hospital or the emergency room. It's going to be right there. Uh, you know, your doc.ai, whatever that is, giving it to you uh, in a level that we're going to believe far greater than some human who doesn't actually have all the data doesn't actually know what's going on inside you and is you know, using a stethoscope, which is a 100-year-old technology. If they had all the data, they couldn't understand it. <laughs> Either. Yeah, it's true. You know, 3.2 billion letters in your genome, you know, petabytes in an MRI and a CAT scan. It's, it's daunting, but that's what AI can do. I, you know, Daniel, I, I have a, a thought that I've, I've been sort of testing out there that within five years, it's going to be malpractice not to use AI in your diagnosis. What do you think about that? I agree. I mean, all the data is too much to for any brain to, to kind of synthesize now. And we need sort of that, uh, I like to call it IA, intelligence augmentation, <laughs> not to replace us, but to augment us in smart ways. And one of those examples, you know, for those who are listening, don't know, Peter, uh, you founded the XPRIZE, what, 15, 16 years ago. And um, try, try 25, buddy. 25. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. 25 the, the original, to be an overnight success. <laughs> yeah, the, the original XPRIZE for space flight, when we announced in 96, it's been a while. And there was one in 2004, 16 years ago, with uh, Bert Rutan, Paul Allen. 
Uh, yeah. And that's really catalyzed a lot of, you know, the private space industry. But we were, I was lucky to be involved with you and we helped come up with a, speaking of science fiction and, and technology, Star Trek inspired the Tricorder XPRIZE, which was won a couple of years ago. And now through the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance, where we have a whole set of other prizes. Maybe you could help summarize for those who are listening a bit about XPRIZE incentives and what we've been doing with the XPRIZE in the setting of the pandemic. Yeah, sure. So the XPRIZE Foundation, uh, based in here in L.A., it's a nonprofit. Run. I used to run it as CEO of an amazing woman, uh, Anusha Ansari, who uh, built a billion-dollar company, flew privately to the space station. She funded the first X Prize, and now she's the CEO there. And we run large-scale global competitions, and we say, listen, uh, I don't care who you are, where you went to school, you've ever done before. If you solve this problem, you win the cash, and the world wins the benefit. And when COVID-19 uh, really hit, we looked quickly at doing a ventilator XPRIZE. You and I talked about that. But, you know, the maker community really responded quickly on that. And there wasn't need for an XPRIZE. Uh, the next prize we did was actually I got a, a text message from Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, introducing me to Jim, Jim Kramer of uh, Mad Money fame and saying, you know, we need better masks. We need masks that people like to wear, that it's comfortable to wear, that you can wear with a with a, uh, a pair of glasses, not fog them up. And so we launched a million dollar prize that Mark and uh, Jim have funded for reinventing the mask to make it actually functional, usable, desirable. And uh, we had hundreds and hundreds of entries. We're down to the top 25 right now. And we'll be getting a winner of that before the end of the year. So super excited about that X prize. And then the second X prize we did, you know, I'm gonna blame you, Daniel, you're the instigator. <laughs> <laughs> along with uh, Jeff Huber uh, of of Google and Grail fame. And, you know, why don't you explain it? Yeah, well, the need we see here, particularly in COVID, is for testing that's fast, frequent, cheap, and easy, as opposed to being hundreds of dollars and sometimes taking days or weeks to return. And so we launched uh, in late July a rapid COVID testing XPRIZE. We had 707 teams from 70 countries. That's insane. Apply. And uh, we're now down yep, to the final 200. Those teams are getting sent test kits to see how they do. And then the, then the final 20 will get tested in person. And we'll only get to the formal five, which will hopefully, as XPRIZE does, is catalyze and accelerate solutions to market, which we really need to open up schools safely and back to work and travel. And so it's a great example of the power of the crowd and an XPRIZE to, to accelerate solutions. Yeah, I mean, the end result of that competition will ultimately be a test that is the cost of a you know it, the you know how people compare things around the world it's a mcdonald's burger or a starbucks latte <laughs> exactly under five dollars and hopefully results in under an hour and something you can do at home and then hopefully another element that's come out of the xprize alliance is the idea of a, of a digital passport like a digital yellow card once you've hopefully tested negative or hopefully eventually have the vaccine that you can tie that data to a, a, a digital passport and go to Starbucks safely or go to school or, or jump on a plane and cross the world. And the alliance that's come out of the XPRIZE has been a really powerful example of how you can have nonprofits, universities, big companies, startups collaborate on a whole slew of solutions that we need to address this pandemic and prevent future ones. You know, speaking of future pandemics, there's something I just want to uh, point out for those listening, which is while this pandemic has been bad, and my heart goes out to those who have been injured or lost work or have a loved one die, it could have been a lot worse, right? Um, I sort of call this a practice pandemic because it's made us so aware of how fragile we are. And for those who have gotten it bad, it's pretty bad. But I, I think some of the reports I'm seeing right now from the CDC and the World 
health organization is it might be far more prevalent than we know, which means that the mortality rate may be, you know, sub 1%. We'll see that. But imagine if we see a pandemic in the future that's got a mortality rate of 10% or 20%. You know, this is a wake-up call, and we better wake up. <laughs> the whole idea that, that this isn't just one hurdle we have to get over, but in fact, we have to embrace as part of modern life. Because of the fact we can decode the genetics, we know that the Spanish flu is still around. <laughs> it's like it never left. So the, these are just going to be cumulative. We're going to get additional jumps uh, of viruses that, that do these kinds of things. And we have to reorganize how we think, reorient how we think. And you're right. In a sense, if you have a worse one, COVID-2 is going to look pretty good yeah. in terms of of being able to protect yourself. Sure, we, we had the terror of not knowing in the beginning what could protect ourselves, but pretty quickly here, we're starting to get the picture, even if we haven't gotten all the solutions. Yeah, no, it's, it's important. We humans are not really good at assessing uh, true existential risks, right? There are problems out there that we blindly turn an eye towards. Um, you know, pandemics was one of them. We've been talking about pandemics for ages, but we were not prepared. And um, and hopefully we're better prepared for the next one. Other problems out there, asteroid impacts. You know, an asteroid impact will make, you know, COVID-19 look like a sunny day in Santa Monica. So we, we need to be prepared for really addressing some of the world's biggest problems. And that's what XPRIZE does. And anybody interested, if you go to xprize.org, you can see the range of competitions we're doing from uh, one of the ones we're about to launch is can you go from a stem cell to growing a salmon or growing a chicken cutlet you know can you instead of just you know growing more animals on the planet because the planet can't sustain this level of growth can we in fact in a lab grow uh, protein sources that taste better are lower cost and are healthier for you and these are the sorts of things that used to be science fiction, but they're now becoming science fact. And uh, in dealing with pandemics in a more responsible, quicker fashion, pre preventing pandemics is something that science and tech can do if we focus the right minds on it. Now, given the current pandemic, um, I believe you have uh, one or two more challenges going. Is that right? Um, Daniel, what are you thinking about in the Pandemic Alliance for additional X prizes around this area? Well, there's a CT scan challenge on, going on right now, looking at data from CT scans to maybe enhance uh, our understanding of, of rapid diagnosis. There are the mental health challenge as well, given that's part of our pandemic is the mental health uh, sort of wave as well, uh, and better ways to address that at the community level and address social determinants. But I want to zip back to something you mentioned. Um, you know, whether addressing pandemics or any grand challenge, often it's a, a bit of a, ma a component of, of mindset and understanding where technology is heading. You co-founded Singular University, which I've been lucky to be part of. Maybe for the folks listening, what are some of your takeaways about mindset and understanding the pace of change to address any challenge, whether it's a grand one or, or personal one? Thanks, uh, Daniel. Yeah, I'm happy to. So, yeah, Singularity University is something that uh, Ray Kurzweil and I co-founded now 11 years ago. Uh, I had the honor of having you chair the medicine and biotech track for, for that and XMED as well. Uh, and the challenge is that our brains evolved a long time ago, 100,000 years ago, millions of years ago. And back then, the world was local and linear. And everything that affected us with, was within a day's walk. 
Nothing affected us on the side of the planet. Uh, and, and things did not change century to century or millennium to millennium. It was pretty much constant. And so our brains are designed to think in a local and linear fashion. But today, the world is anything but that, right? Today, the world is global and exponential. Something happens in China or India. You know about it seconds later. Computers know about it microseconds later. And things are not changing century to century or decade to decade. They're not even changing year to year. They're changing month to month. And so uh, how do we as, as parents, as civic leaders, as uh, entrepreneurs, as you know, uh, just regular humans, how do we deal with that? Because our tech is moving so fast. And this is what I call an exponential mindset and really understanding that if you have 30 linear steps, you're 30 steps, 30 yards away. If you take uh, 30 exponential steps, or an exponential is a simple doubling, 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, in 30 doublings, you're not uh, you know, 30 yards away, you're, you're a billion yards away. You've gone around the planet 26 times. And that disconnect, you know, and, and I've been trying to teach people about exponential growth and and COVID-19 has done that better than anything else. Uh, it's We're linear thinkers in a world that's changing exponentially. And the biggest problem for me is a lot of parts of our government don't get that. Entrepreneurs get that, right? The Googles, the Amazons, the Teslas, the SpaceXs, the Apples, all of them are exponential companies taking advantage of the data and creating magic year on year on year. One of the challenges I think you're developing here is in the area of CT. A lot of people don't understand what that could do for anybody. Some of what we're challenged with is that you really have to understand the technology and the medicine and the environment. Well, yes. I mean, the ability, first of all, for an image of your body, whether it's from an X-ray or a pathology slide or a CAT scan, a CT or an MRI to be fully understood really takes a super well-trained physician. Um, but it's possible now using neural nets, uh, it's a one of the realms of artificial intelligence, to actually look at an image with a neural net and have it do, I think, if not now, in the very near future, a much better job than a radiologist in understanding what it's seeing and giving you an answer. And we're seeing a whole slew of new technologies. There's a company called Echo that's creating a handheld ultrasound machine. I mentioned Mary Lou Jepsen from um, Open Water that's creating basically a handheld MRI, a thousand times cheaper, a thousand times volumetrically smaller than the MRI that can image your body at home. And you know, if you're able to image your body, you can find disease, whether it's a aneurysm or the beginning of a cancer in the very beginning when it's treatable. And in doing it in the home, it's there and available all the time. So this is really the revolution of the future of medicine. It's, it's making it uh, on with you all the time. We're all going to have a version of Jarvis from Iron Man, an AI that you give permission to look at all your health data 24-7. So it's not a, you know, a checkup with your physician once a year. It's continuous at a level of fidelity like never before available. This is the vision that Daniel's been talking about, I've been talking about, and it's exciting because it's happening. And by the way, COVID-19 has accelerated to probably two or three years. And it also is writing, I think, what you often call the, the five Ds. Maybe you can summarize that because the example of an MRI that might fit on your smartphone or on a, a band around your head is this example of that sort of digitization and, and democratization. Maybe you can help run through the five Ds. Yeah. 
Sure. So what happens is when you digitize something, and the example is we digitized the Kodak camera, right? Remember, you used to go and buy a 36 exposure of Kodachrome film. When you digitize it, the first thing it does is it dematerializes. It gets rid of it. It's gone. It's become ones and zeros. It's an app on your phone. And when you dematerialize it, makes it ones and zeros, the cost of replicating that app or transmitting that app is effectively zero. So it demonetizes, it becomes almost free and it democratizes, it becomes available to everybody. So, you know, these are, this is what exponential tech is doing. You're digitizing every aspect of our life. We're digitizing photography and finance and genetics and medicine. And it, it demonetizes and democratizes it so that eventually the best diagnostics in the world are going to be AI. And those diagnostics are going to be available to anyone with a cell phone, um, which means that a mother or father in the middle of sub-Saharan Africa uh, will have equal diagnostic capability to someone in Manhattan. The same way that if they're on Google, Google isn't a little bit better for someone in the US and Africa. It's identical. It's identical for Larry Page, the founder of Google. I know that you've been working or a part of uh, a company I find very interesting, Covax, C-O-V-A-X-X. Yeah, no. Um, so it's a great story. Uh, I've been on the board of a company called Vaccinity. It's an amazing company that's using vaccines to prevent Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, hypercholesteremia, which is basically stroke and heart disease, and, um, and migraines. And it's part of a, the parent company, United Biomedical, has been around for 30 years. Vaccinity has been around six years. And I got a call in March from uh, May May and Lou, the co-CEOs, and they said, hey, Peter, we think our vaccine technology could do uh, really well in, um, in COVID-19. What do you think? I said, let's do it. And we went from a conversation to 30 vaccine designs in under 30 days. Uh, and then our top candidate, our lead vaccine candidate, is now in human trials. Um, and the animal data from the vaccine candidates, awesome. Um, you, you need five things for a vaccine to really work well. And it's important for people to track the stuff. Number one, when you give a person a vaccine, it has to, it has to create a high antibody count. It has to be uh, immunogenic. And our vaccine in the animal the preclinical trials, it has the highest immunogenicity we've seen. Um, it generates antibodies in your bloodstream 400 times higher than convalescent plasma. So pretty awesome. Uh, the second thing it needs to do is those, those antibodies have to be neutralizing, meaning when you mix the antibodies in your bloodstream or in a Petri dish with live virus, it has to knock them out. And our neutralizing count is 32,000. And now to put it in comparison, the preclinical data from, um, from AstraZeneca, uh, the Oxford vaccine, the neutralizing data there was 40, 40, and we're at 32,000. So it's like 800 times more neutralizing, which is pretty amazing. Uh, the vaccine has to be um, manufacturable. The nice thing about the the COVAX platform is the platform we're using. We, we've manufactured 5 billion vaccines in other virus indications, foot and mouth disease, for example. And it has to be transportable. And rather than requiring liquid nitrogen temperatures, our vaccine is regular refrigeration, you know, um, 
two to eight degrees centigrade. So super excited about it. Uh, we're hoping to have 100 million doses ready in the first quarter of next year, 2021. Dr. Peter Diamandis is the executive chair of the XPRIZE Foundation and co-founder of COVAX. With Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft, we'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, natural mutations can make a plant better or make it less resistant and more. Peter Beetham, the CEO of Cebus, joins me to talk about its technology, making tiny edits and seeds just like natural mutations do. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Daniel Kraft joins me in interviewing Dr. Peter Diamandis, the executive chair of the XPRIZE Foundation and co-founder of COVAX. There are so many trials attempting to be uh, developed here and we and not enough people. Where and how are you trialing this? Interesting, right? So we have a partnership in Nebraska, with University of Nebraska Medical Center, which turns out to be the National Pandemic Center. So super proud about that. Uh, our phase one trial is in Taiwan. We have an FDA approved manufacturing facility in Taiwan. So in partnership with the government, we're doing our phase one trials there. And then we signed a deal in Brazil uh, to do our phase two and phase three trials there. So Phase one in Taiwan, phase two and three will be in Brazil and uh, with in the U.S. University of Nebraska Medical Center. And it's, um, you know, it's an incredible time. I, I will point out something that's interesting. You know, people forget how fast the world can innovate and address a challenge. If you go back and you remember back in March and it was like, oh, my God, how do we deal with this? How do we get PPE? How do we get ventilators? How do we get vaccines? Um you know, there was a very slow, deceptive period of growth. And then all of a sudden, a tsunami of ventilators and masks every place and, and you know, hundreds of vaccine operations around the world. And 
it is extraordinary how the world of scientists can react to something like this. I mean, it's been an amazing uh, period of collaboration globally for the last six months. Well, I have to say that Peter Schwartz from the Global Business Network always says 93% of all the scientists who have ever lived are alive today. 90% of all the engineers who have ever lived are alive today. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that there's this acceleration of collaboration. And I think some of the things that come out of it, like your vaccine and others, are going to have lessons that hopefully prevent future pandemics and in my big picture, hope is that they'll save more lives than, than COVID has, t has taken. And that kind of comes back to one of your sort of core premises. You've written a bit that this time is really very ripe for innovation. What happened in 2008 and the last sort of economic downturn spurred us several new companies. And you often work with, you know, established and budding entrepreneurs. And maybe for those who are listening who are wanting, a, need a bit of a change in mindset and your sort of idea around a massive transformative purpose, what can we help anybody think in terms of accelerating the future? for themselves, for their community. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I do, I'm doing a lot of work on mindset, Daniel, and thank you for that. It's my uh, Abundance 360 uh, community that I often bring you into. If I were going to ask you and ask everyone listening, listen, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs, right? If you were to say what was most important for their success, was it their tech, their money, or their mindset? I hope you'd answer their mindset, right? If you took away their tech and their money, but they retained their mindset, they would regain that. And your mindset is is critical. And few of us ever take the time to shape it, to say, this is the mindset I want. I want an abundance mindset. I want an exponential mindset. I want a longevity mindset. I want a gratitude mindset. I want a, you know, a moonshot mindset. I mean, and these are the mindsets I work on with, with entrepreneurs to help them shape that because once you create a mindset, you end up, uh, you end up shaping the decisions you make. In fact, I created a, a platform where you can get uh, news that helps you shape your mindset. It's called Future Loop. Go to futureloop.com. It's free. And, and there you're going to get the news that supports your exponential or abundance or longevity mindset. Because the challenge with most news media, not the one we're on right now, is that we're bombarded by negative news all the time because we pay 10 times more attention to negative news than positive news. And, uh, and so all of the amazing world news, most of the positive stories really don't get properly told because we're hearing about what's going on in Washington, D.C. or London or this murder or that murder around the planet. I can't tell you how important that is for people to hear, and I'm sure we're going to get cards and letters, as they used to say in the old days. That totally <laughs> uh, <laughs> totally will resonate. I, I, I don't want to take any more of your time. I know you were, we're coming right up against a real hard stop here. Um, Peter, of course, you're always welcome on Tech Nation, as is Daniel. <laughs> and I, I love it. I hope you come back and see us again. I will. I will. I will. And uh, and thank you. I, I, I love spreading the gospel that science and technology is truly creating a world of abundance. Uh, I'll also say something that unfortunately has been way too controversial, which vaccines have saved tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of lives. And while people, it's controversial, um, it's going to be a critical technology for bringing us back to normalcy. Uh, I hope that people will see the COVAX vaccine as something that's safe, 
it's been in human trials and uh, I'm super excited for myself and my family. Um, and if you want to shape your mindset, check out futureloop.com. Terrific. Thanks so much. Thanks, Peter. Take care. Dr. Peter Diamandis is executive chair of the XPRIZE Foundation and co-founder of COVAX. More information on XPRIZE can be found at xprize.org and for COVAX at covax.com. That's C-O-V-A-X-X, covax.com. Next, the subject is agriculture. Peter Beetham is the CEO of Cebus in San Diego. He tells me that natural mutations in seeds are tiny one nucleotide changes at a time. And it's that kind of mutation here and there that caused the Irish potato famine. Cebus's technology makes tiny edits too, just like a mutation would. But now we can improve seeds in the very same way. Peter, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you so much, Moira. Now, let me ask you, what are the kinds of things that have improved agriculture over the centuries? Well, Moira, you know, the thing about agriculture is it really has been for the last 3,000 years a progression um, of genetics. Uh, what's ex- What I love about it is that, you know, it started, for example, wheat started as a weed in a field uh, in the breadbasket geographically. Uh, and over many thousands of years has been selected uh, and grown and become the, the common wheat we know today that feeds you know, millions of people. Agriculture, you know, through genetics uh, and selection, has been you know, bringing um, crops to broad acre. So what do we, when we think about agriculture, we always think about uh, taking seeds and planting thousands of acres. One of the ways to do that is to is to select varieties that have certain characteristics, what we call traits. And over the you know thousands of years, people have been able to do that so that, for example, you know the the progenitor or the starting genetics of corn was um, a tiny little corn um, cob that had really tough, hard seeds on it. It was called tiacinte. And then over time, that's been selected, uh, and then genetics through plant breeding have combined the genetics to allow um, hybridization, allow introgression of better genetics. So farmers today can plant corn that, one, is tasty, (laughs) you can use for feed, you can use for popcorn, uh, but all these characteristics, all these traits uh, have been developed over a long period of time and selected uh, using what was the very early genetics and then bringing in uh, other genetic forms to provide the modern corn we have today. We know it's from genetic diversity, but uh, for a long time there, they didn't know they were talking about genes. They just knew, ooh, this changed. Or I can mix this guy with this guy, and we can come up with this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's like, I don't know why, but it's working. <laughs> you know? Well, a lot of that is what we call in the industry phenotype. So that was the, you know, the phenotype is what you see. And so if, you know, a plant breeder would go into the field and look and say, okay, this particular plant, maybe it is a bit taller or 
you know, um, has less disease. Uh, and, you know, therefore they would select that out based on its phenotype. They didn't know the genetics, but they did know that they were all different. And it really wasn't until Gregor Mendel uh, that we understood that, you know, genetics played a role in the phenotype. So what you see, all of a sudden we started to understand how we could monitor those genetics in in all crops, not just Mendel's peas. And, you know, moving that forward, that diversity now has a really strong understanding of the genetics behind it. And what we understand also is that very small changes in genetics can lead to really important characteristics. So when we think about genetic disorders in humans, a small mutation can end up in something like cystic fibrosis. In agriculture, a small change may mean that that particular plant, or then a crop, is more um, susceptible to a disease. And so by correcting that small change, you can make it more tolerant to a disease. This brings us to genetic engineering today and what it has meant for genetic engineered crops. Well, that's correct, Moira. There's, um, you know, when you got to the 90s, there was a, a, I know, a boom of new technologies that came forward uh, that used uh, a string of DNA and what we called as a transgene, um, a gene that you can move from one organism into another. And they were able to accelerate uh, the ability to add traits to agriculture. So, for example, farmers uh, had an insect problem uh, and they were able to grow crops now that had been more engineered using a transgene, a piece of DNA from another organism, into its own genome and it was more tolerant to those insects. This was really exciting, but that was, um, I always look at it as like Windows 95. Um, it was a great operating system at the time, uh, and we all loved it. But you know that, and that genetics is been fantastic. We're, you know, where we're thinking currently now is you know in the two thousands and now two thousand and twenty, you know, an ability to do amazing things without having to use um, what was known as GMO or a transgene from another organism. What we want to be able to do now is is look at sort of the next generation uh, and understand when I go back to, you know, the, the diversity in genetics that is out there that Mother Nature has provided, it's incredible to think, okay, can I utilize some of that diversity without having to do sort of major chunks of DNA from one organism into another? Can we go in and understanding the genetics provide new characteristics that are even more valuable than the ones that GMO gave us that provide benefits not only to the farmers, um, but also processors and consumers. One of the reasons over the last 3,000 years that all of this has been possible is that uh, plants, just like uh, everything else that's alive, has mutations so that even though you've been planting the same crop for years and years and years with the same seeds, there are some that will mutate. And I think we need to now stop and talk about how 
uh, DNA mutates, whether it's in humans or it's in rice. Uh, let's talk about that. What happens when we have mutations, natural mutations in organism? Two things can happen. So the first thing is that a cell replicates its DNA. So when it copies its DNA, just like many copy mechanisms, it, it's not 100% perfect. So you end up with what they call small DNA errors that um, are repaired along the way. So if you think of it like a, a, a zipper and the ties in a zipper, um, it doesn't quite, it gets stuck and there's nothing worse than a stuck zipper as we all know in a parka. Um, but just by, you know, if there's one that's not quite right, with the fault, if you like, in, that, in, the, in the little tine in the zipper, you can either get your fingernail in there and move it around or zip it up and down a few times and it comes back together. DNA is a little bit like that. Um, you know, it's a lot more elegant, obviously, but it uh, allows a repair mechanism to occur. And occasionally that repair is faulty. And so that creates a mutation. Now, the second bucket of that is that cells are also hit from um, outside stimuli. For example, you uh, go out in the sun and you have uh, UV rays from the sun that affect cells and disrupt DNA. There's other, lots of other different things that can occur, but fundamentally that can also affect DNA. And that occurs, creates a mutation. So the mechanism that I've just described of the zipper, really, um, when you think about plant genetics, the idea of being able to essentially use an understanding of what mutations are in the, the genetics or the genetic diversity across all plants, not just you know, your corn or, or soybean, but understanding that was really what was the holy grail for plant genetics. And I was really fortunate, actually. Um, the timing of, of that understanding came along with um, plant genomics and understanding the, the underlying gene structure and genes associated with, with you know, modern day agriculture, modern day crops. So I... Uh, came to the US to work on a technology that had been shown in humans to correct these mutations at a molecular level. Uh, first of all, I didn't believe it. I thought, wow, that's, that's incredible. I mean, the implications of that for um, agriculture, for food, for you know, creating um, new characteristics was phenomenal. So for me, the understanding how to do this was really important. Coming to the States, I, I did a postdoc up at Cornell and worked with a team there uh, that was looking at this saying, okay, can we replicate what is going on in the natural systems of when that mutation is corrected? Uh, and understanding that in that particular cell make the same mutation that we would like to direct at that point in time. So using nature's own mechanism to provide a, that particular cell with an advantage. Uh, and that was the thing that was really exciting for us because very quickly we were able to show that in fact we could do that. 
in a real sense, the ability to change the genetics one nucleotide at a time, one GCA or T at a time, is exactly mimicking what happens in real life when genes mutate. Exactly. So for you know, when you think about it in the field or the or a plant breeder who's out there seeing a corn plant that's a little taller than the other one, they know that there's a certain series of mutations that have made that a better, stronger corn plant. So, you know, when you think about all the combination of technologies, that's allowed us to sort of really imagine a world that you can really target specific traits quickly uh, instead of taking decades, uh, maybe taking as little as two to three years. And what I would hope in the next year or so, even faster than that. Now, in the United States, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the USDA, it does the approvals on changes to seeds, genetic changes to seeds. And you've got 14 different traits that have been approved. Tell us, what are some of the traits that you've uh, been able to change and how many changes genetically did you have to make to get that trait? So let me start with the, we call them input traits. So most of those 14 approvals, what we call input traits. So a farmer, when they plant their crop, has a certain amount of input. So it's fertilizer, it's fungicide, it's insecticide, it's herbicide, and many others. But there's a lot of inputs. And so the main body of those um, requests to the USDA were around disease tolerance. And that's a great example because it has a number of factors that are really important. First of all, the farmer most years has to spray fungicides over just about all crops. That's a cost, not only on the chemistry, it's a cost of uh, them having to spray it onto their crop. So there's fuel costs and there's delivery. Uh, There's also the the problem of runoff. Uh, So you end up with the, the issues around impacting the environment. So if we put those traits uh, for disease tolerance into seeds, we can provide farmers with a, a seed that allows them to use less of the fungicide. So guess what? That means they don't have to spray as much. They may not even have to spray it at all. It's, uh, there, there's less effect on the crop and importantly, less environmental impact. What we've been able to do with a number of those um, traits that we've provided to the USDA is an understanding that we can do that in multiple crops, uh, but also potentially multiple different uh, diseases. I think most of us at one stage in our school career might have heard about the the potato famine. So you know, it was a, a nasty disease of potato that nearly wiped out uh, well, did wipe out the, the, the potato crops in Ireland. And that f- fungus is still around. Um, and we're still spraying for it. We're still using fungicides to control that. 
so that's where we, you know, we can imagine now a world where we, we can affect change by having our technology provide tolerance to diseases like late blight, which is the, the fungus that have affected the potato famine. And there's a myriad of other diseases that we can and have worked on with uh, our new technology. If we take the potato example, we know that there's really just probably one to four changes that we can make genetically and you get the tolerance to the disease. It really is quite remarkable that small changes in genetics can lead to such important uh, new characteristics. And when you are saying one to four changes, you're not saying one to four chunks of DNA changes. You're saying one to four individual changes in the DNA, just really small, tiny changes. Absolutely. That is exactly right. It's just, again, these small single nucleotide changes, which in the industry is known as nowadays is known as edits. Um, and, but it really is just this small change in, in a single nucleotide. It may be, like I said, one to four, um, it may be in different genes, but we know now that that system and that approach, um, can provide these new characteristics. And let's just be clear that CRISPR, which everybody's heard of, and I constantly get questions about CRISPR, is a tool another tool, because there are a number and there will be more. CRISPR is just a tool to cut out those big chunks of, of uh, DNA from one uh, organism and put it back into another. This CRISPR is last generation. This is, in a sense, next generation. Exactly. I think you've got to think about the modern technologies of gene editing as a family of tools. And CRISPRs is just one part of it, where, as you say, they, it's a, you know, they essentially can either take, cut out a chunk of DNA or make a cut and disrupt a gene. So what we call a gene knockout. But essentially, it's, it's um, stopping that gene from working is what you're doing. This next generation is using that DNA repair mechanism we talked about before to target and just do single nucleotide changes at you know one gene at a time or one nucleotide at a time but it's truly editing we just change one nucleotide at a time you hijacked that repair mechanism i'm telling you <laughs> made it <laughs> bent it to your will you bent it to your will but it's all still within the natural uh, the natural scheme of things, if you will. You just, just a few little edits here and there, tiny, tiny. Now, let me ask you this. You've got a, a business now. Of course, CBIS is a business. Um, and a lot of people have to really think, you know, how do you get seeds? Seeds generate seeds. Sometimes there are whole crops where you generate seed, you, you plant seeds, and then you grow the crop, and then you, quote, let it go to seed. So it can generate, each seed can generate a whole lot more seeds. So what happens with your clients? Do they come up and say, here's a cup of seeds, and here's the tiny little changes I make? Is that what happens? Essentially, it is. So our customers come to us, essentially, us with you know, their seed 
um, and a change order, uh, essentially asking for a new characteristic. And we take that seed uh, and we do our technology on that seed and, like I said, produce these very small changes in the genetics and hand it back to them. Uh, and it only really needs to be a cup of seed because they'll take that forward and produce, you know, potentially millions of tons of that seed, uh, but it brings benefits to the farmer. All of this clearly has tremendous benefits to agriculture and all the various aspects of sustainability. Uh, you're approved here for 14 traits in the U.S. Um, what, where else are you working at this point? Of course, this is emergent, so you have to go sort of country by country or region by region. Where to next? Where else are you working? So for us, the first... You know, first cab off the rank, if you like, was really the U.S., uh, but more importantly, North America, because uh, we, we've been working on canola, which is a crop that has grown in Canada, primarily in North America. It's over, there's over 20 million acres grown across the prairies. We've also uh, working with potential customers in South America, uh, so when you think about the Americas, that's been our first first foray into providing traits uh, into this marketplace. We'd also like to expand that um, into areas of the world like Europe, um, as well as Southeast Asia and uh, the Pacific. Uh, obviously, we'd love to go to Australia, <laughs> being from Australia, uh, and it's a huge agricultural uh, country, you know, with lots of... Uh, crops in Australia, and uh, we'd love to go there as well. Well, this has been terrific, Peter. I hope you come back and see us again. I would love to come back and talk to you more about uh, what we do more. It's an important subject, I can tell you. My guest today is Dr. Peter Beetham, CEO of Cebus, located in San Diego. More information is available at Cebus.com. That's C-I-B-U-S, Cebus.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.